This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name is Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. Today, we have a cool interview, and this is really going to be a case study of what it means to have a powerful mindset, regardless of whatever situation you are in. You know, we all have things that we struggle with, and some of us use them as excuses for reasons why we don't think we can succeed or you know, obstacles that are thrown in our way. But today you're going to meet a guy who has come from some pretty interesting places, has dealt with more adversity than most of us could ever possibly perceive in a lifetime and still overcome them to achieve levels of success that most people will probably never achieve. So today is going to be a really great interview with Mr. Ben Kinney. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. What's up, brother? Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the time. Yeah. So um, at Family Reunion this year, you were on stage with Gary. And, you know, Jay had shared some of your background with me, but I had no idea where you had come from, the things that you've had to overcome to get to where you are today. So why don't we go back to your childhood and talk a little bit about where you were raised and, and what that was like? Sure. <clears throat> In normal fashion, Gary didn't give me any prep on what we we're going to talk about on stage. So. <laughs> That was an uncomfortable conversation, but... Uh, In front of 20,000 people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, did, he just said, be transparent and share everything you want and help the audience get past any excuses that they might be using to um, stop themselves from getting further, actually. So he started off by asking me about, I guess, my childhood, which is what you just asked me about. So I was born in Washington State. I've never lived anywhere else Um my parents separated at a very young age at about one and a half, two years old. And back in that time, my parents decided instead of paying child support and going through a big battle that my mom would take my sister and my dad would take me. And, and so we lived, my sister and I, apart most of our lives, except for every other weekend we would, we would go to my mom's house and I would see her there. My sister never really visited my, uh, my dad's house too much. So my mom moved up into a smaller town called Granite Falls and um, in, a, in a manufactured home trailer. And, and um, my dad decided to, I guess, basically give up on, on relationships and women and, in general. And he moved to as far away from the civilized world as, as he could go without not being able to work, I guess. And we ended up in a town called Oso, Washington. And he rented a little cabin that was... 270 square feet and uh, that cabin half of it was filled with boxes and debris and clothes and and garbage and the other half we lived in my dad broke apart a couch and and that's what we used for a bed and I slept on one side with my feet one way and he slept on the other side with his feet the other way and we cooked on a wood stove and and every once in a while, we'd borrow power from a neighboring place because um, there was houses around us a little bit that had power with an extension cord. And um, But for the most part, we had no power. There's an outhouse that was 100-and-something yards away and um, no indoor plumbing. And that was kind of the start of my childhood. And it was uh, for a kid and a boy, you know, before you're subjected to peers and, and kids and girls, it didn't seem much different to me, I guess. So it sounds maybe tougher than it was, but it wasn't. It it's was all just, you knew. It was all I knew, yeah. If I if I had to summarize the, the hardships of growing up in there was, I remember being hungry quite a bit. You know, I remember my dad falling off the roof and breaking his leg as a roofer when he 
put on a free roof for the church that we were going to. And for those three or four months, a roofer with a broken leg without health insurance cannot go work. And and the church never showed up and, and um, helped or anything. And so, you know, we had a little bit of food from the food bank and and uh, hunt, hunted and fished and a little bit. And um, I was hungry and just being hungry a lot as a kid, shaking cans to figure out what was inside it. Because back then, the food bank would take any can donations. You know, a lot of times they didn't have labels on it. They'd have initials or whatever, but it was a gigantic game of, like, am I going to get olives or like peas or asparagus or am I going to get like for cocktail or pears or like something good that a kid wants? You know? <laughs> so so we, uh, we went through that um, kind of hunger. And I just remember being hungry and I just hated that. It was also relatively dirty because um, we didn't have shower and that kind of stuff. And my dad was kind of a mountain guy anyway so he didn't think about those sort of things and going to school clothes were normally dirty and um and i think because of that the children and, and the teachers might maybe uh write you off a little bit i remember one time they wouldn't even let me take the advanced placement test and i think it was just because they thought um that, that i wouldn't qualify just just because you know how we looked or how poor we are but the house wasn't so bad that when we got off the bus i would walk I'd walk the other direction so the kids couldn't see where I lived because we I was so ashamed of the house that, that we lived in. And then once the bus left, then I'd circle back around and go to the house. Every other weekend, I got to go to my mom's, and my mom was a was a was a good mom. She was a hard worker. She'd work as the janitor during the day and a waitress at night. And um, but she never really kicked. Uh, kind of back then. Um, maybe dating some of the wrong people and, and and she married an alcoholic and my mom is really heavy into alcohol and drugs and um, so the weekends was a lot a lot of them drinking and doing drugs and I remember having a heroin overdose at a pizza party that we had and um, lots of them fighting and, and those sort of situations and inadvertently you know that ended my mom's life last year was, was she, she died from from years of treating her body bad and drinking and, and still doing, um, taking pain pills and that kind of stuff. So lost my mom and my stepfather within two weeks last year apart. But um, childhood, that was kind of it. I, from there, I ended up living with my mom for a couple of years. Once I found girls, girls were an important part of, uh, <laughs> you know, a young, young guy was thinking about girls and he wanted a place out of shower. My mom's house wasn't super nice. There's smoking and drinking and drugs, but the trailer had a shower, and that was something that you know you would you would want as a kid if you're going to school to be a little bit cleaner. And so I left that town and, and got a head or got a new start. I got to be a new guy in a new town, so I moved to that Granite Falls area and started going through high school, and that's where I uh, ended up graduating. Well, what's even, and I want to pause for the people who are watching this or listening to this to to kind of reflect on themselves. You know, I've asked Ben here today to share this story because I really want you to hold the mirror up to yourself. Wherever you've been in your life, um, when you just heard what you heard so far, you compared yourself to it. You know, I'm hearing you say like, oh, I moved up in life to finally do a place where I'm living in a trailer and I have a shower. That's, that's the upgrade. In my mind, I'm going, oh my gosh, like what a step backward that would be making me realize what privilege I did grow up with. Um, and kind of like you said, Gary, before you walked on stage, said, be as transparent as you want to be, but help people understand what excuses they're telling themselves from getting the results that they deserve. And when you hear this, I want you just immediately to take stock of this. Where do you stack compared to this? Did you endure the same level of hardship or did you have more privilege than that? Because now, you know, our story is going to continue, but you're going to see, in spite of all of that, the actions that have been taken. So we'll, we'll get back into it. So, so it wasn't a, you know, nothing wrong with living in a trailer, manufactured home and that sort of stuff, but it was, it was a bad one. You know, we, just, we used to shoot rats from inside the house. We'd put dog food out there and we'd shoot them with the 22 because the house had a lot of rats. And still to this day, I'm super scared of rats and mice. I hate them. And how old were you when this was happening? It was my childhood, so every other weekend. And then when I got into middle school, towards upper <laughs> middle school and high school um, during that time, but there was a lot of, you know, alcohol and drugs and yelling and fighting and, and kind of this abusive relationship between the, the family circle there. And so by the time I was 18, I packed up and, and left 
and what was interesting was when I left, within a couple of weeks, my mom left too. And, and my mom had just never left that situation because she couldn't afford to take care of us, take care of me, because my sister had already left by then, financially without the support of the man she was married to back then. And uh, so she was selflessly stayed in that relationship. And I, and I believe that she used drugs and alcohol as a way to cope mm. and just was never able to break that that cycle. And um, I call that the rut. And when we all get stuck in in a rut. And the rut for a lot of us, I think, is created when we focus on things that we cannot control. Mm. Other people, the economy, our location, um, the weather, our family, things far out of our control. And when you focus on that and you focus on things you can't change, you end up in this mindset that you just can't break out of it. And really, the only way to really have an amazing life is to understand that you need to only focus on and only think about the things you actually have the ability to control. And I, I've summarized those into um, a few simple things. How you think, how you use your time, which the one thing is really, really about who you surround yourself with, the people, and then how you use your money, how you spend it, and how you invest it. And if you can do those four things and understand that those are really the only four things that you control in your in your business and in your career, then uh, you can have a really amazing life because you focus on on the things that you actually have the ability to change instead of sitting back like a victim. So how you think, how you invest your time, who you surround yourself with, and how you invest your money. Yeah, yeah. So I call it think, time, who, and money. And it's in the form of a triangle because the first thing you have to learn to control is how you think. What you think is possible. How you think about situations. Like are you a victim or are you not a victim? How far do you think you can get? The ability to change how you think has to be done through changing who you are. And the only way to do that is to read more, is to get coaching, to get education, to, to put stuff in, to physically change who you are. That's why the, this, this control triangle, as I call it, the foundation is so important because you change how you think first. And if you can't do that, you're stuck. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you can't do that, then what you do is you end up spending all your time thinking about things you can't control, which is the rut which is why people end up doing the exact same thing that their parents did back in poverty, back in drugs, back in bad relationships, back in whatever those things. Then once you control how you think, you realize that the next most important thing is um, how you use your time. And one of my favorite quotes from the one thing uh, that Gary and Jay wrote was, every yes must be validated with 1,000 no's. And Steve Jobs said, something similar. Innovation is saying no a thousand times. And I look at these two, three very successful individuals that have amazing lives and and Steve Jobs and Jay and Gary and, and both of them, or all three of them say the success is actually about saying no, not saying yes. And if you're not getting the results that you want in life, it's because you're saying yes too much and not no enough. And when I finally got that, first it baffled me <laughs> And then I really understood that I needed to start tracking my no's every day, not my yeses. So what did that look like? Well, in my in the early in my career, it was about the number of no's I got dialing or door knocking when I got into sales. You know, I, I got out of high school and I paid for community college selling furniture and installing cable. And then I got into cable TV sales. And then I got into real estate sales and so on. But each one of those were commission-based. Even as an installer, it was a job-based thing. It was about how much you go out and do. But when I got into sales, I realized that uh, my success was about how many no's I got, how many doors did I get slammed on me, how many people were not home, how many calls didn't get answered, got hung up on, or I left voicemails on. Because I could track that. And I knew that over time, if I tracked the no's, it would actually lead up to a certain amount of yeses. Or you could improve the conversion. Good, yeah, absolutely. Talk about your cable story, because I think uh, so many people, you're talking about changing your thought process first, changing the way that you think. So many people, um, they're working hard. 
but they're not getting the results that they deserve, many people think the solution is to work harder, to put in more hours, to sleep less, to spend less time with the family. They, they make sacrifices in other areas of their life, yeah. yet they still are not getting the results. You know, here you are, you're selling cable, and, and talk a little bit about what you were getting in terms of the types of results and a tweak that you made. So this, this um, manager that I had, uh, her husband got this job installing cable TV. And she said, hey, I can get you on this company. They're doing cable installs and they're making a lot of money a week. I think they were saying $800 or $1,000 a week. And that was I was doing that math in my head. That's forty, fifty thousand 50000 a year. And that's more than my mom and dad made combined. It never crossed my mind that I could do something like that. And, and I was going to community college and I just kind of said, oh, I'm, I'm in. So I went and took this job installing cable. And what I'd do, it was piecework. So we got paid 10 bucks to disconnect cable and 25 bucks to hook it up, you know, and and, uh, the faster you are, the more you got paid. And I worked really hard to make sure um, that I was making the most amount of money. So by the time I was 18 or 19, um, I think my K1 or W2 or whatever it was back then was, you know, 56 or $60,000 as a young kid going to community college and and I never even told the company that I was going to community college during the day. What I did is I got all my 8 to 10s and my 10 to 12s done by like 10 or 10.30. Then I went to school from 11 to 1. And then I did all my 12 to 2s and my 2 to 4s after 1. And then I'd pick up additional work to get paid more money. So if your cable guy's ever late, maybe he's just getting going to college and getting a degree. <laughs> uh, well, I was sitting at the at the cable store shop one day and it was wet and I was dirty and I was filling out my paperwork and some guy came in and and he was a he was a sharp looking guy you know and he had the same paperwork as me and but he drove up in a nice car you know like a fancy one like a Mercedes or a BMW or like the kind of cars that I never saw in the towns that I came from right and uh, he was dressed nice too, and he wasn't wet or dirty like me. And I, I was looking at him, and I was looking at me, and looking at him, looking at me. I'm like, mm. so I said, "What do you do?" And he said, "I I do uh, direct sales." And I said, "What's that?" He said, "Well, I sell cable TV, and then I install it." And I said, "Does that pay a lot?" He said, "Yeah, it pays pretty good." And I said, "I made about this." He said, "I made more than that." He smiled at me, and I said, "Okay." So who's your boss? And he points over to the corner, and there's this little guy, a little Italian guy, used to be a first base stop or a first baseman in, in Major League Baseball and back in the 60s. But he'd been working in the cable company since the 60s. And I went to that guy and said, hey, I'm an installer. I'm fast. I have sales experience. I want to join your, your, your direct sales team. And he said, we're not hiring. I said, that's awesome. What do I have to do to get hired? And I just badgered and bothered this guy named Dominic uh, Albano until... Uh, he didn't hire me for months. I'd bother him until he hired me. Then he hired me, and uh, the cable direct sales guys, they worked hard. They would go out every day. They would knock doors, and then the people that answered their doors, they would sell them cable TV with HBO or cable TV with Showtime or whatever. you know. So I did that, and they would get one or two sales a day. And I went out there and immediately, I just was in better shape then than I am now, right? And, <laughs> and uh, uh, I would just outwork them. So I could get two sales every day instead of one to two, or I could get two to three sales every day when I had a good day. And I was a fast installer. And if you, you could just sell them if you wanted to, but if you installed them right then, it was for sure a, a, a commission. Yeah. Because if you didn't install it, you didn't know if it was, when it was going to happen. And they wouldn't, they may not show up. They'd change their mind. But no, I mean, you want cable? Awesome. I'll hook it up right now, right? So I just hook it up. I get it done. And I started thinking one day, all the guys left the office. I'm like, I can knock a certain amount of doors per hour. But I have everybody's phone numbers in the phone book right here in front of me. I said, what if, what if I just called those people? while everybody was gone knocking on doors and then convinced those people to buy cable. And then I just went out there and installed it and then came back. So I started trying that. And I never told the other sales guys that that's what I was doing, but I could call four or five times the amount of doors I could physically knock just because you hang up, dial, hang up, dial, hang up, dial, hang up, dial. I just get a lot of no's, right? I probably called a quarter million 
people in my in my cable career, which means I've gotten two hundred and forty thousand no's in my life already. You know, by the time of that in my career, so that immediately meant that I went from two to three sales a day to three to five sales a day. So by the time I was twenty years old, I was making six figures and selling in the song cable. So I got my boss to transfer me up a couple counties away so I could work on my four-year degree at a, in the town I live in now called Bellingham, Washington. And and uh, I started thinking, well, how do I take this a step further? How do I use my time and become more efficiently, more efficient and more productive? And I thought to myself, I'm calling people that have decided to not get cable TV or internet and now phone was starting to come out from, from those companies. And... Uh, I had this idea. I said, well, what if I talked to people before they made the decision not to have it? Who would those people be working with? And I thought, real estate agents, title companies, rental companies, so on. And so I had this old laptop, and I made a utility sheet of all the different places, the, the phone company, cable, mailboxes, garbage company, power, gas, everything I could think of. I just filled it out, the pound, everything, right? And uh, then I put the logo of the real estate company and the logo of the apartment building and the logo of the property management company on top of this utility sheet. And I printed them on really nice pieces of paper. But the thing was, is where it said cable, phone, and internet, I put my cell phone number on there. And I delivered it to every apartment building, to the Navy base, to every real estate company, to every property management company in town. And in about a three-county radius. And what happened was these people started handing them out to all the people that moved. And then instead of me cold calling, they called called me. And I went from two to three, three to five sales a day, to five to 10, to 10 to 20. And it got to the point where every single year at the cable company, they started reducing the amount of commission I got paid per per sale because I was making too much money. We're making 125, 150,000 a year while going to college selling cable TV. And that actually led me up to one of the biggest events in my life, which was um, going out and selling this lady cable and installing it and her having a problem with her cable TV and me fixing it. And she said, uh, I just bought this place. And I said, is it a condo? And she said, no, I, because it, it looked like a condo building to me because it was a duplex. She said, no, I, I own both sides. And I said, well, why didn't you just buy a house? And she said, because the neighbors pay my entire mortgage. And I just, I wasn't a super bright kid, still not. And I, and I say that kind of facetiously, but, but also I've always had a hard time reading. I'm a little bit dyslexic. I went through speech therapy a lot because I stuttered and, and had a hard time. I still will write the third letter first. And I have a lot of issues learning traditionally how schools traditionally taught back then. But I, I just kind of looked at her for a second. And this light bulb went on in my head, and I just thought, this lady's living for free <laughs> in a house, not a trailer, not a cabin, right? This lady is living for free. And I thought, that is the craziest idea that I've ever heard of. So I left there, and I went to a mortgage company, and the guy said, you need $11,500. And I said, all right. So I saved up a little bit of uh, extra money to get to $11,500 plus the reserves that I had to have. And, and uh, I started looking for a duplex. And through happenstance of working with a couple of realtors and, and a bad realtor or two, and then ended up with finding my own duplex, but calling a realtor and having them write me an offer. Um, that realtor actually uh, helped me buy this duplex, and my mortgage was $1,210 a month. Then I rented the other side of the duplex out for $1,200. So I lived for $10 a month, and I had my own three-bedroom place. And But the closing gift um, that my agent gave me, this was in about 2003, gave me Gary Keller and Jay's book, um, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. I don't know why she did it, but she lived a couple counties away and her husband worked at the cable company with me. And she gave me that book as a gift. And uh, I read that book and that was the decision that led me to quit my job and to invest in myself and take a risk and, and, and go start my own business in real estate. Part of the reason why I wanted Ben to tell this story with you is because, um, I mean, you hear him say, he says, I'm not that bright. I mean, he is, he is a smart guy, but I think we all overcomplicate success. 
think we put it on this pedestal and imagine it as this this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And to get there, we have to do all of these complicated things. We have to have this fancy degree. We have to be in relationship with these people. We have to have this shiny title, drive this car, give this perception off to other people. And the truth is, I mean, Ben didn't come from any of that. He just looked out and he worked hard and constantly said, how can I do better? And how can I do this smarter? And how can I do this more efficiently, more productive? And just, you know, you get into real estate and now let's fast forward to the end. How many, I don't even know how to ask it, companies, market centers, you know, what does that look like? So you said something about complicate and funny. That's been the new thing that I've really been thinking about. And I said this to somebody the other day, and you said this almost exactly to me um, when we were speaking earlier, but I said, we tend to complicate things to justify our inaction. Mm. We tend to complicate things to justify our inaction. So we come up with reasons or spreadsheets or gigantic business plans or big things to put all these roadblocks in the way so that we don't actually go out there and do something. And the advantage of not being as smart as a lot of my peers, and I have some really smart peers, and I say that as a compliment because they're super intelligent, how they think impresses me, is that I don't complicate things. I draw, if I can't draw it on a single piece of paper, if I can't draw it on a whiteboard, and I can't explain it in 30 to 60 seconds to somebody, I don't think it's a good idea. So we tend to complicate things to justify our own inaction. And you think about that. We often use reasons to justify our own results in life instead of just going out there and start taking action. So you asked a little bit about our businesses today. So we have a multitude of real estate brokerages, five or six in uh, the United States that have uh, about 1,250 agents. And uh, we own a master franchise in the UK, so Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, uh, England, where we sell Keller Williams franchises to to entrepreneurs that want to start their own real estate brokerage. And then I have uh, five real estate uh, technology companies that we sell and design and build software for, for real estate agents and brokerages and franchises. Then we have a sales business where we actively go sell and help consumers, and we do that in eight different states and 11 different locations right now. We have a little bit of a training business and some investments and some foreclosures and negotiation companies and that kind of stuff. But it's like 20-something different operations right now. It's 100 and something W-2 employees and 13, 14, 1,500 W-2 contractors. When I hear you say all that, I think of uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is that's the opposite of one thing. I, I think of a lot of balls up in there. How do you do all that? Gary Keller would say that success is sequential. And what I say, my one thing is that we do real estate. And we started in real estate sales, which led us to buy and operate real estate brokerages. In order to attract people to those brokerages and to those sales teams, we started doing real estate training and building a training company to attract and retain and get those people into productivity. In order to help those agents become more productive and to take advantage of what we believe the future is going to be like, we started investing in technology for our own businesses. And it just happened to be that real estate agents wanted to use it and they were willing to pay for it. So we woke up a year after hiring a single software developer and looked at each other in our businesses and said, we, we actually have a little bit of a software product. And it just kind of grew, kind of grew from there. Yeah. And are you the one running all of these or do you have people? No, for sure. I don't believe that anything can happen in a work week that's productive over about 50 hours. Hmm. I also believe that when you make your life about the who instead of the what, the potential actually becomes unlimited. So as I've progressed in my career, I started focusing on finding talent, hiring people, building a business finding people that would build those businesses for me. And when I get involved in those businesses, it's because that person isn't performing. And I tend to hand somebody the potato and I expect French fries back. I don't expect the, the, the potato back. And because of that, I put in a strong emphasis on the hiring process and a strong emphasis on the prospecting for talent. 
time blocking that into my day and my career so that these businesses don't take up too much time. And a lot of people, if we talk about complicating to justify their inaction, what they would say would say, well, I, I would do that, but I don't want to have a life like yours because I have a family and I have kids. And I'll tell you that you look at your phone and you look at your computer more at night and the weekends than I do. And you work on the weekends and you work at nights more than I do. And um, because you don't have leverage. And I built a business that says, hey, I'm going to invest in keeping my people and, and getting my people into productivity and, and wealth and, and making sure they don't go anywhere. Whereas other people tend to invest in doing or working in the business, as people would say, instead of on the business. Yeah. Well, and I remember hearing Gary say, this just blew my mind at any point in time when you feel like you have a ceiling, you're reaching a ceiling in your life, it's, you're missing a person, either in the form of leverage, employee, contractor, or in the form of a mentor or a, a coach. coach. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, he always says the highest form of success is success through others and no one succeeds alone. So I love what you said. Success is sequential because you started focusing on one thing and that knocking that domino down led to the next domino, which knocking that down led to the next domino. And all of a sudden you fast forward. Nobody knocked down 1.4 million dominoes. They knocked down one. Then knock down another, then knock down another, then knock down another, and so on and so forth. There's a book out there that was called um, Rework. Mm, yeah. And, and I read that right when it came out. And there was one chapter in there that st- stood out to me more than any other, and it was called Selling Your Byproducts. And it, was, it talked about how sawmills, you know, make an enormous amount of their profit today by selling the sawdust that's created yeah. from, chop, from sawing the wood. And that just stuck with me on, well, what are the byproducts that I would have? I'm just a real estate agent. And I'm, well, the byproduct is that I have real estate agents working on my sales team. Well, those people could be part of a brokerage that I owned as well. And then I started thinking, I had to train these agents. Well, a byproduct of creating training for them is the agents that weren't mine, that were somewhere else in the world, they would want that as well. So it wasn't like I was doing anything additional. I was just simply recording and packaging it so it could be sold and given to somebody else on top of it. Yeah. And even the software, it was designed and built to guarantee success in real estate for me and my agents, not anybody else. So my one thing has been furthering my mission and my vision for my employees and my companies and helping us with the statement that we make of we do real estate. And that's, I don't, you know, notice I don't build software for veterinary clinics or for, for anybody else. I build real estate software and I train about real estate and hiring talent and I have brokerages and real estate sales business. That's my one thing is real estate. What you just shared um, is striking a chord with me because I had a conversation earlier with Jay where I wasn't in the the highest of spirits, been, been, enjoying the uh, entrepreneurial roller coaster, specifically the part when it goes down. (laughs) And, uh, you you know, when you face the resistance can be in that rut. And Jay this morning said something to me that really pulled me out. And he said, you know, what's the problem that you're focusing on solving? And I went on to this monologue about how I'm trying to get this business to sustainable, predictable profit and blah, 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 blah. And he stops me and he says, notice how everything you just talked about is about you. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know of anybody who has ever gone out there and built a really successful business that made a massive impact by focusing on themselves. They looked down in the market and they solved a real problem, but you, you're thinking like a CEO. You need to think like a founder. Why do all founders start a company? I said, because they want to solve a problem. He said, whose problem? I went, their own. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're saying, you, you started solving the problems that were unique to you and your real estate business. And that was just a big light bulb for me. All right, all right. when it comes to living a productive life, what are the things that I am really struggling with that also our audience is really struggling with? And how do we first and foremost focus on just solving that problem? And I think that's why um, I don't have the results yet that I am happy with. Well, if you're the guy that I think you are, you're probably the guy that's climbing the mountain that actually never has a peak. True. Because we are always on that. High achievers tend to never turn around and celebrate. And that's okay for high achievers. The downside is that sometimes the people that work in our organizations need to stop and celebrate and realize that they hit a peak, even though we may not need to, they need to stop and celebrate. And that's definitely a lesson that I've learned that I have to remind myself to stop and say, hey, everybody, we made it to the top of this mountain. High five. Awesome. So proud of you. I love you. I care about you. We did awesome. By the way, here's another mountain. Have you guys seen that one? That one's huge. Yeah. <laughs> you got to go over there, right? And uh, so, we, we, so we don't end up on that roller coaster too much. 
you know, you've had a lot of direct interaction with Gary. Uh, not many people do. And this may be an unfair question to ask, but think about some of the most powerful lessons that you've learned from him over the years. For those people who don't have the honor and the privilege to get direct exposure from him, what can you share with them? I mean, he's dramatically changed my life from afar, from the seats that I sit in, and from close from the seats I get to sit in, and from the things I listen to and from the books that I read, um, almost equally. And a couple of one-on-one conversations that he's had with me that really stuck out. One was, one of the hardest things, Ben, that you'll ever do is doing what's right for other people while doing what's also right for yourself. Because we tend to always maybe get stuck in this position of a bad partnership or a bad relationship or, or in, in a long-term hire with somebody that may not be the right person. And we're trying to do what's right for them, but at the same time, we're not doing what's right for us. And he said this very clearly. He said, I love people. I want for them the very best. Sometimes people don't give their best and they put the mission in jeopardy. It's been extremely impactful for me to realize that I need to do what's also right for me and what's right for my people. And I'm willing to take financial losses and to write financial checks to people because I know that they may have never have an opportunity like this and it's the right thing for me to let them go away and think that they won because that'll be the last victory they win in their life because that's the type of selfish individual they are and I can always make more money, right? But getting out of those relationships this was the lesson that he was trying to tell me was, you know, when you're, when you're in a relationship that's unfair to either party, what happens is it ends up either holding you back or blowing up. And I came up with this, uh, this, this thought process from his mentoring, and I called it a, a balance and a scale And the scale in my life is a balance between love and results. And what I mean is is that I want to be in business with people, whether they're my partners or my employees, where I love them so much that I have them over for Easter dinner, Thanksgiving, Christmas, holidays, right? I travel with them. I go on vacation with them. I enjoy talking to them. And they get the type of results that the role requires. Anytime that's out of balance... They get high results, but you actually don't love and respect them because what they do after hours or how they treat people, whatever. Or they, you love them a lot because they're amazing people and you've been friends with them your whole life, but they actually are not succeeding in the role. What happens is resentment is created. And it's resentment two ways on both sides or is resentment individually. And that resentment builds up and that resentment is so strong that it ends up in an explosion where you guys could have had the opportunity to either A, part as friends or be part in a business way where it would have been amicable. Instead, it ends up where you are going home, you're, you're taking out on your spouse or your kids or your partner, or you're gaining weight, or you're dreading going into the office. You use a different door to walk around that employee so you don't see him, uh, or they're doing the same thing, and, and resentment's created. So one of the things that you gotta learn to do is control resentment. Resentment from your people and resentment in yourself. And the way you do that is making sure that everybody in your relation, you're in relationship with, you love to the point that you would hang out with them you know, on on the best holiday, and they get amazing results. And never sacrifice on any one of those two things when they report directly to you. Now, when they don't report to you, that's somebody else's problem. And then you teach that manager to make sure that anybody that reports to them, they love, right, and they get results. It's their Christmas table. Mm. Not yours, right? Mm. But anybody that's in direct report to you, you better love and they better get results. And I think, you know, if you walk out into the lobby of the Keller Williams corporate, we have the, the values. And number one is win-win or no deal. And it's, um, I even remember when I was considering moving to Austin to start this with Gary and Jay, I was doing my due diligence because I, I didn't know him that well. And I'm talking about moving my family across country. What was amazing to me was how I could not find a negative thing that anybody would say about either of them. Yep. They cared so much, and, and it's just true. Everything they do, it comes from a place of win-win or no deal. And when, when you do that, when you truly act like that, imagine the legacy that you leave. 
I, I've seen in many situations where those individuals lose to make sure the other person wins and they walk away because at the end of the day, Mo Anderson, one of Gary's best hires, she taught me something. She said, Ben, sometimes being right isn't the most important thing. And for a young entrepreneur or for an aggressive individual, somebody building a business, that's a really hard thing to grasp. So you sit back and say, well, what do you mean not being right is not important? You know, that this person did me wrong. You know, this person harmed me. Or I have the right to go after this person. Or I have the right to, to prosecute. Or I have the right to fire or whatever. And, and you know, Mo, Mo is clear in saying, you know, it's sometimes being right is not the most important thing. And it's a hard lesson to learn because our ego wants us to be right. Talk about in relationships and marriage. You know, if you're successful in, in a marriage and relationships, you realize that being right is not always the way you win. Right. Sometimes it's just just letting it go. Totally true. So we've spent, you know, 45 minutes together or so. Or so but um, for the people who are watching or listening to this, I always like to get them into action because consuming content is great yet. The value multiplies exponentially when you take action on it. How would you suggest that they implement what we've just discussed? That's a good question. Thanks. <laughs> I want to tell a little story. I want to go back to this triangle thing, I guess. Last year, I had one of my best friends who was one of my employees embezzle money from me, and I caught him on the day that I buried my mom. And my mom died from drugs and alcohol and heart failure combined and then two weeks later my my stepfather died and then I, I lost a personal relationship because of a bad situation that happened on their side and and um, I got diagnosed with some medical things and and my dad ended up leaving a relationship and I had to find a house for him close to me and and my sister was in a, in a bad relationship and um, her and I didn't end up speaking for months and there was just like this collection of, and I'm not going into deep details for the sake of not boring you guys, but there was things that I think have the potential to cripple any one of us that happened <laughs> in a 12 month period for me and what I had to realize was that I had an opportunity to sit back and focus on those things I could not control. Or I had the opportunity to show up and make sure that the people that relied on me that were still on my bus, the people that are in my companies or my employees or my partners or my family or the people that still love me, that I could go and show up every single day and be the strongest one in the equation. And somebody said, well, why do you do that? And I said, well, the, well, one of the most important things was re removing resentment. And well, they said, well, how do you remove resentment from a best friend that embezzles you or a, or a, or a female that um, loses your trust or does those sort of things or any of that sort of stuff? And, and I came up with a simple answer. And I said, the greatest revenge that I could ever think of that I've learned in the last 12 months is forgiveness. So what I did with those individuals, I just went up to them and said, I want to apologize for anything that I ever did that would, that maybe uh, caused you to feel like you, it was okay to do what you did to me. And because I know part of that's on me and has to be. It created a resentment that allowed you to go do what you did. And number two, I, I had to, then I had to say, I want you to know that I forgive you and that um, I don't need you to pay me back. You can leave with all the stuff that we bought together. You can um, rest in peace, Mom. All, all those sorts of things. I had to give forgiveness. And then I had to walk away. And the reason you do that is because if you don't truly apologize for whatever part you have, and you don't actually give forgiveness and forgive, they continue to steal parts of your brain and your mind forever mm -hmm. or, or they say oh, I can't hire somebody again because the last one embezzled from me or I can't ever date again because the last one harmed me or I can't ever do this because this happened or you know we end up focusing on all these things we can't control so how do you get those things out of your life you just go up and you swallow pride and ego and everything else and you just apologize and you say I forgive you and you walk away and you get that out and you move forward and then what you do is you focus on the things you can't control. How do you think? So what's your plan for controlling and improving how you think? 
So I came up with a plan. It was, uh, one, I listened to a book on Audible for 10 to 15 minutes a day, three times a day, on two to three times speed while holding the book in my hand because I'm a little dyslexic. It helps me read, it helps me retain, and it helps me read faster. But when you do that, you go through in that 30 to 45 minutes a day that you spent reading, you go through two and a half hours of a book. So I started going from reading a book once a year, once every couple years in my earlier careers, to now reading two to three books a week because I'm on two to three X speed and I do it in 10 to 15 minute increments every um, day. So when I wake up, 10 to 15 minutes of a book. During lunch or when I have a break in the day, 10 to 15 minutes just to clear my brain. And then after work or before bed, 10 to 15 minutes because everybody can find 10 minutes at different times. And then what I realized is I started consuming more information and while I drive, I'd listen to podcasts, one thing, podcasts, some NPR, how I built this podcast, some of my other favorite podcasts, right? Uh, by the way, I listened to one of your podcasts this morning. Uh, it was really good. And by doing that, it actually feeds my brain mm-hmm. almost like a drug where I come up with ideas. It changed my mindset. It changes my potential. I heard the story of the, of the lady that built Spanx. Yeah. Oh my gosh, a lady had me in tears listening to that story. It just motivated me so much. You know, I'm still on fire from listening to that story. So I change in the way I think. That also said I'm going to create barriers to eliminate negativity in my life. So I'm not going to allow uh, bad news. I don't watch scary movies. I don't allow negative employees. I don't allow people to talk to me about drama in their life unless it's after hours. So I put up walls. And then... Once I get through thinking, then I go to time, then I track. How many no's do I say? Am I time blocking the most important thing in my day? And then I cancel 50% of all the appointments on my calendar on an ongoing basis at all times. And that's an ongoing plan that I did. It's just all 50% of all my appointments get canceled. And then we give them the opportunity to reschedule with us. And then that frees up most of my time. So every day I have free time that wasn't available previously and I give it to my assistant and that's her job is to cancel my appointments because most people are not serious about your time yeah everybody wants 10 or 15 minutes or to have lunch or to have coffee or to spend an hour with you or whatever and that's great give it to them but make them ask for it two or three times get them off your plate otherwise you're going to spend your whole life serving everybody else and you aren't going to take care of the ones that are most important turned off all the alerts on my phone so I don't have texts that pop up I don't allow my phone to vibrate I don't have my emails pop up none of those things are present don't bring my laptop into my house. All those things get to change the way that we think and then change the way that we use our time as well. And then the next part is who? You know, who are we around? Am I finding a mentor for each area of my life? And the one thing book says you need one for spiritual and for health and for finance and for relationships and for your business, right, and your career. You need one in all these areas. And you need a mentor or you need a coach. So am, am I having hiring a coach for as many of those areas as I think I need it at all times? Am I hanging around with the right people? And that's hard because, you know, sometimes that was... You know, my mom would call me every day, you know, drunk. And when my mom was drunk, by noon or 1 p.m. every day of the week and for years. And when she was drunk, she'd always talk about killing herself. When she talked about killing herself, it would ruin my day. It would mm. upset me, and I'd bring it to work, and I'd, I'd, I'd be upset because nobody wants to hear your mom talking about that, right? And then, so what I had to do is I had to send my mom to voicemail. And I love my mom, and she's so important to me, and and, and uh, I can't wait to see her again. Yeah. And, uh, but... I had to wait, send her to voicemail, and call her back the next day in the morning and when she was not intoxicated. So I created a way for the people that had to stay in my life for them to fit into the box that I was going to allow them to fit in because they weren't going to ruin the rest of my world, right? Employees, my coaches, my mentors, making sure my who was was going to build me up to be the right type of person. And then... Once you're, when you're successful in those three things, what happens is your businesses and in your career, you start making more money. You start making bonuses or your businesses start growing. You start making better investments. You start having more money. And then you start investing it and saving it. So you start you need to start studying money and knowing what to do with it and managing your expenses. Now, what's interesting is the more money you have and the more people you're around and the better you think and the more you use your time, it actually all contributes to growing the base of thinking on what you think is possible for yourself. 
And then once you think something's more possible, then what you do is you use time in a better way because you have to by hiring leverage or creating leverage or whatever. And then you actually start hanging out with different people and finding different people and making better connections. Then you start making more money. And then the cycle continues. And also the base of the triangle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon the momentum of your life actually feels like a snowball. I just gave you a really long answer to your question. So your take action, I'd say, is clearly focus on the difference on a piece of paper. Just draw a T-chart, you know, the letter T, right? On one side, write the things you can't control. And on the other side, write the things you can control. And every day when there's something that's getting you down, just ask yourself the question, can I control that or not? And if you can't control it, don't spend any time or energy on it. If you can, take action, get it off your plate as fast as possible. But if you can't, just move on. Some things we can't control. I mentioned how this uh, this morning I was experiencing the uh, the lower part of the entrepreneurial roller coaster where I felt like I'd been kicked in a place that was uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. Focusing on the wrong things. And on my 411, something Jay shared with me was 86,400 seconds. If I... Walk, or if you walked into my office right now and I handed you $86,400 and somebody came in and took 20 of them and lit them on fire, are you going to take the remaining balance, $86,380, and light it on fire? Of course not. That would be ridiculous. He goes, well, every single day you got 86,400 seconds. 20 were just burned. Are you going to give yourself permission to burn the rest? Yeah. He goes, you know, how can you get through the five stages of grief as fast as freaking possible right now so you can go focus on what you actually can do? Yeah. It's just like, all right, Jeff, time to, um, okay, it's done. Move yeah. on. And the easiest way to do that is to clearly understand if you can control it or not. Yep, I love it. I love it. Well, folks, there you have it, Mr. Ben Kenny. Hopefully this added value to you. Um, I'll, I'll drive it home again. We covered a lot of different angles. What's that thing that really spoke to you? What is that single thing that when you take away from this, you can take action on? I love what he said about make a T-shirt, draw a T on a piece of paper. You either can or cannot control it. If you can't control it, move on. Focus on what you can control. So appreciate it, brother. Good time. Thanks.